This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. And thanking him for what he was going to do. As usual, the atheist heard her praying and thought to himself, hmm, I'll fix her. So he went to the grocery store, he bought a whole bunch of groceries, he took them to her house, dropped them off on her front porch, rang the doorbell, and then hid in the bushes to see what she would do. When she opened the door and saw the groceries, she began to praise the Lord with all her heart, jumping, singing, shouting everywhere. And the atheist man, he jumped out of the bushes and he told her, you old crazy lady, God didn't buy you those groceries, I bought you those groceries. Well, at that point, she broke out and she started running down the street, praising God even more exuberantly. So he ran after her. And when he caught up with her, he said, what is your problem? She said, I knew the Lord would provide me groceries. I just didn't know he was going to have the devil pay for them. <laughs> the second story, a country preacher decided to skip services one Sunday and head to the hills to do some bear hunting. Well, as he rounded the corner on a perilous twist in the trail, he and a bear collided. And it sent him and his, tumbling, uh, his rifle tumbling down the mountainside. Well, before he knew it, his rifle went one way, he went the other, and he landed on a rock and broke both of his legs. That was the good news, because the bad news was there was this ferocious bear charging at him now, and he could not move. Oh, Lord, the preacher prayed, I'm so sorry for skipping services today to come out here and hunt. Please forgive me and grant me just one wish. Please make a Christian out of that bear that's coming after me. Please, Lord. That very instant, the bear skidded to a halt, fell to his knees, clasped his paws together, and he began to pray right aloud at the preacher's feet. And he said, Dear Lord, bless this food I'm about to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. And then the last one's not really a story, but <clears throat> maybe a perspective, but you can imagine someone getting up and saying this. So far today, God, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, I haven't lost my temper, I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed, and then I'm probably going to need a lot more help. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. And while each of these stories has a humorous element to them, there's a common theme that speaks of the miraculous, powerful influence that prayer has or can have on each of our lives as Christians. But prayer also seems to be the least utilized and most flippantly approached element of our faith. And there was a survey done recently by the new or the presidential prayer team. And they found that 45% of adults surveyed in America claimed that they prayed every day, less than half percent, <clears throat> half the, the people praying. So this morning, I would like to look at the question of why Christians sometimes don't pray. And this is a huge topic, it's one that we could get swept away in, like Jason said, I could have you here all morning long. I'm not going to do that though. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to limit this to six areas, six reasons that <clears throat> I think Christians don't pray. And I want to say notably that one of my reasons that we lack in prayer will not be because we don't make time for it. That is a separate sermon altogether, and I think one that's worth putting a lesson together on, but we won't be discussing that today. What we will be talking about is first, 
They forget who vouched for the power of prayer. Two, they believe the biblical teachings on prayer are just another person's mail. And it's not really for them. Three, they don't believe prayer can change God's mind. Four, they feel their concerns are too trivial for God. Five, they feel too sinful to pray. And six, they may be discouraged by unanswered prayer. So under our first reason. People sometimes forget who it is that vouched for the power of prayer. So our text this morning comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 10. <clears throat> and I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and what is closed will be opened unto you. Who is saying these words? The answer is found in the first words of verse 9. And I say unto you, this is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ speaking. The one who is making the promises in Luke chapter 11 is the same person spoken of in John 1 verse 3 without whom nothing was made that has been made. As the maker and sustainer of all things, Jesus understands the workings of the entire universe. With that in mind, you can believe Him when He says, Ask, and it shall be given to you. He knew what He was talking about. Some may say that the laws of science don't support what Jesus was promising here. But if there was anybody in this world that was qualified to make such a promise and know what he was talking about, it was Jesus. One preacher put it this way, We may be assured that there are no forces which can prevent the declaration of the Lord's own words. From the Creator and the Sustainer, the word, <clears throat> I say to you, settles all controversy forever. In other words, Jesus is the most qualified person ever to say it is because I said so. Don't you hate that when your parents say that, kids? I, why? Because I said so. Prayer is powerful because Jesus said so. Following closely on this reason is my second reason people don't pray. They believe the biblical teachings on prayer are actually another person's mail. And it's not really for them. You know, most of the New Testament, for example, is comprised of letters. And uh, as such, people explain away so much of what the Bible says. Let's look at what occasioned Jesus' commentary in our text. Earlier in verse 1 of that same chapter, Jesus' disciples asked Him to teach them to pray. Now, this wasn't necessarily one of the twelve apostles, although it could have been, but it was a disciple. It's important to distinguish that because Jesus had many disciples, not just 12 apostles. And I say this because I can't tell you how many times in my life I have heard people say that the miraculous power of God in our lives <clears throat> might as well be relegated to the dustbin of history because so much of what God did miraculously is limited only to the time of the apostles. You know, miracles <clears throat> were primarily used to establish Jesus as the Messiah. They were foundational for the faith, the fledgling faith in the early church to develop. And some say that God no longer works in any type of miracle at all. And as a result, the power of prayer is, you know, it's just discounted almost entirely by some. Brother Clint 
gave a wonderful quote in our last message on this prayer series from George Muller. And if you remember, he said that Muller's life showed that God was not yet out of the business of miracles. And the miracles they were talking about weren't necessarily supernatural miracles, but they were very clearly miracles of God. Things that shouldn't have happened, shouldn't have been possible, happened in amazing ways. Miracles happened then. Miracles happened in the New Testament times. And brothers and sisters in Christ, God is still in the business of miracles as a result of fervent prayer. But there are more people than you might expect who believe that those words are just another person's mail. They're interesting to read, but they don't really apply to us. It's not true. When Jesus made these promises about the power of prayer, understand that they were promises meant for all men across all time until this old world ends. There were countless disciples of Christ. They're not all accounted for in the pages of the Bible. And Jesus was giving them, and by extension you and I, a promise and a generic teaching on the power of prayer. Don't let any naysayer steal the power of prayer away from you. Don't let that be the reason why we don't pray. Even so, there's other reasons people don't pray. They don't believe prayer can change God's mind. <clears throat> Earlier in Luke 11... There's a defeatist attitude that is implied in Jesus' story of the persistent neighbor. We all know the story. You have this neighbor, he's asleep in his bed, and I've heard many stories on this before, and they say that in those times, you know, the whole family slept in the same bed. So you get all tucked in, you got your kids, you got your wife there, and you might even have some livestock sleeping very nearby you as well. And once you get all settled down, it's not a simple matter to get up out of bed like it might be for us. So when this neighbor of his came knocking on the door. It's very inconvenient. And he was asking him for some food for this unexpected guest that showed up. And at first, you know, this neighbor, he didn't want to get out of the bed, but eventually he did because the neighbor wouldn't stop asking. And Jesus pointed out that this man didn't give this needy neighbor food out of the goodness of his heart. He just did it because he knew he'd be able to go back to sleep all that much quicker if he'd just get rid of this guy and answer his request. Jesus went on to say in verse 13 that if mankind can stumble upon a gracious response, can ultimately answer the request, then how much more likely is it for God to answer our prayers? The moral of the story isn't just that we should be persistent in prayer, but the true moral of the story is that we cannot be defeatist in our prayer life. We shouldn't assume that prayer is a useless enterprise simply because we think that everything is ordained. God holds the future in His hand and therefore there's no point in praying because it's just going to play out the way it's going to play out regardless of how we pray. Again, that is not what the Bible teaches. Perhaps the most famous example of this being wrong is when Abraham appeals to God to stay his hand in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you may say, well, he wasn't praying. Prayer is nothing more than talking with God. So keep that in mind. And in this story, it's found in Genesis 18, 20-33, God had already determined what He was going to do. He was on His way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, he said that the cries, the wicked cries of that nation had reached Him. 
in the halls of heaven, and he had come to finally do something about it. And it's interesting the way it's written because here's God on his way. He's got these two angels with him. They're on this journey to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's almost like God thinks to himself, you know, I'm going to stop and I'm going to talk to Abraham about this and let him know what I'm going to do. Why would he do that unless he wanted to hear what Abraham would have to say? And you know, he knew what Abraham would say. He did it anyway, didn't he? He entertained the petitions of Abraham. He even decided to alter his course. Now, ultimately, he ended up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, but not because he wasn't answering Abraham's request. He did it because Sodom and Gomorrah was just that wicked. Abraham didn't even know how to pray for them. What he should have done is said, Lord, can you just not judge these people? They're inexplicably wicked. You won't find a soul among them that's any good. Had he prayed that, maybe God would have stayed his hand. But he couldn't do that because they couldn't even find this small number of people that Abraham asked for in order to spare that city. And this story exists precisely because God wants us to know that He is sovereign in all things, including in the ability to change His mind about something. Now, there's a lot of people that say, well, God is immutable. He's unchanging. Therefore, he, it's impossible for Him to change His mind. Um, that's, again, just not true because we have examples in the Bible that pointedly show otherwise. And think about the logical fallacy involved in saying that because all things are, 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 are ordained, that it's useless to pray because God's predestined everything. Wouldn't that mean that all action is meaningless? What would be the point in breathing or eating or doing anything? I mean, after all, what will be will be, so we might as well do nothing at all because I'm just along for the ride and that includes prayer, right? Wrong. We know this is not only false, but it's foolish. It is certain that God has predestined everything that happens in heaven and earth. There's not a sparrow that falls to the ground. There's not a blade of grass that withers that God is not directly involved with. But this does not mean that prayer doesn't change things. We don't cease to eat or drink because God's going to, uh, because we know that someday we're going to die, do we? We don't stop working because we know that God is our provider, do we? Likewise, we don't cease to pray just because God holds the future in His hands. There's one wise man, he rightly said this way, speaking about how prayer fits into predestination. We have an answer that satisfies us, namely that our prayers are in the predestination. And that God has ordained His people's prayers just like everything else. And when we pray... We're producing links in a chain of ordained facts. Destiny declares that I must pray. I pray. Destiny decrees that I will be answered. And the answer comes to me. End quote. In this story, Jesus makes the point that there is nothing inconsistent with our sovereign Lord hearing and answering our prayers and deciding that He will act upon them. Remember, Christ is God Himself. And the very purposes of heaven and the earth, they are his own. So here's the very person who predestined all things, and it's according to his purposes. He also says to us that it is within his purposes to hear and answer our prayers. It changes things. So seek, ask, and knock. The implication is if you don't ask, you will not receive. So there is predestined change that we can, we can 
Ask God to do things that may change his course. And yet a person can believe in the power of prayer and still not pray because number four, they feel their concerns are too trivial for God. This is again by implication that I'm drawing this out you know, from our text. God is interested in hearing from us on the small things. Have you ever felt something on your heart was just too trivial to bring before God? In Luke 11, verse 6, we read about someone asking for food. This is that same story about the neighbor. And he wasn't asking for that food because his guest was starving. It's because in Middle Eastern society, when a person came under your roof, it was a matter of honor and reputation to be hospitable. Essentially, this man was waking his neighbor at night to ask for food because he was concerned with how he would look, what his reputation would be like, if he didn't provide hospitality. That's quite a conundrum, isn't it? You're going to be rude and wake your sleeping neighbor in order to be hospitable to somebody else. There's no explaining mankind's ideas sometimes, but that's what happened. This wasn't a life or death situation. This unexpected guest who showed up wasn't starving. And if he hadn't eaten that late at night, the only casualty would have been this guy's pride and reputation. That's a small thing and the greater scheme of things, right? But I want you to take notice that Jesus used this small thing of all the examples He could have given to illustrate the appropriateness of asking, seeking, and knocking. Sometimes people don't pray because they just feel their concerns are too trivial. I have actually met people who tried to argue and make the point that you should not pray all things in Jesus' name, only the serious things. That is just ludicrous and anti-biblical. God does not want us to be afraid to approach Him in all things. He is Abba Father. The equivalent of Abba would be our modern day term Daddy. It's not a perfect uh, uh, translation, but what it does is it carries the authority and expectation of obedience, but a close intimacy to the relationship as well. That's why Jesus concludes His teaching on prayer with the commentary on an earthly father giving good things out of love and then pointing out that Abba Father loves us so much more than an earthly father ever could. If an earthly father is right to show love, how much more so our Father in Heaven? Are we really saying that man can one-up God by sometimes being kinder and more loving? Because that's the implication. If you say that, well, I could ask a small thing of my daddy, but not God, then what you're saying is really there's a gracious element to your, earth, to your earthly father that God, that your heavenly father doesn't possess. That would be error. Jesus told us to ask, seek, and knock. He didn't qualify that with something like, if it's important enough, then ask. He didn't say, don't you bother me by seeking unless it's worth my time. And he didn't warn, you know, somebody better be dying before you even think about knocking on my door. That's not the kind of Heavenly Father we have. And we need to remember that and pray. We have a special relationship with God. That's why the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is not just the God of the big things. He's also the God of the small things. 
God's not just the God of the good times. He's also the God of the bad times, meaning He's there, present, on the throne, active and engaged in anything and everything, all the time, big or small. And He wants to hear from you and I about it. But some people don't go to Abba Father because they're ashamed. <clears throat> Our fifth reason that people don't pray is they feel too sinful to pray. <clears throat> I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one than I did on the others. Because I think if we're honest, this is probably the one that impacts most of us most often. I want to highlight that in our text, Christ doesn't mention anything about being worthy enough to pray. Did He forget about our sin? We know He didn't because in Romans 3, verse 23, we read, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what about sin? Doesn't sin cut us off from God? After all, Isaiah 59, verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. I believe this and a few other verses in the Bible are why this is one of the primary reasons that Christians will not pray. We believe we're not worthy. And certainly we think we're too dirty at times to come before God. <clears throat> and yet, isn't it true that when we're the most dirty, that's when we're most inclined to cry out to God? What a desperate feeling it is to know that you need God, that only God can help, but you feel too soiled by sin to even ask forgiveness or for help. What are we to make of this? I believe the answer is still to be found in Luke chapter 11 in what's become known as the Lord's Prayer in verses 2 through 4. I'm not going to get into this too much because I believe Dane is going to conclude our series by talking about the Lord's Prayer but I do want to point out the order of prayer as Jesus lays it out. Some people say, well, the order doesn't matter. I think it does. There's no such thing as uh, accident in the Scripture. First, we are to acknowledge the person and majesty of God. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Second, we are to submit to the purpose and plan of God. His will be done first and foremost. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, as in earth, or as in heaven, so in earth. Third, now we get to the point where we make our petitions known. But I want you to notice two things. It would be a sinner who is making this prayer, because the Bible tells us all men are sinners. And second, no mention of sin has been made in Jesus' model prayer up to this point. But we are asking God for something in prayer regardless. He says, give us this day, give us day by day our daily bread. Now if you read on into verse 4, we see the fourth point of order in the prayer, and forgive us our sins. There it is. The acknowledgement of our sins before God and the asking of Him to forgive them. Did you notice it came after the request for our daily needs like bread? Forgiveness of sin is a far greater need than, you know, our daily bread. But Jesus included in there that we have our daily concerns, big and small, that we are to come in prayer to God the Father with. 
And we're talking to him about it before we even make mention of the sin that we have to deal with in his eyes. The fifth thing that we do is we reject hypocrisy. It says, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. You see, God knows our fallen state. It's no secret that we're soiled with sin. God does not reject us for that reason alone. God rejects the person who brings pride and denial in his request. Now we're talking about Christians here. Bear in mind. If you haven't been saved, this, is not, this prayer was given to disciples of Christ. When you're not saved, obviously, you're in a position where God is not hearing you unless your prayer is to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But after that, that's what we're talking about here. Now, if you look at the parable of the Pharisee and the publican in Luke 18, verses 10 through 14, Jesus further illustrates the point I'm making. It says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. Now, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, well, even as this publican here. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I possess, and I just imagine him trailing off as Jesus turns his view to another person, and this guy's still blathering on the side. And this fellow, verse 13, and the publican standing afar off would not so much as lift up his eyes into heaven, but he smote upon his breast, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself should be exalted. There were two prayers here. Only one was answered. What was the difference? The Pharisee, you know, he had a long list of good things he'd done, but he was self-righteous. He really wasn't asking for anything. He was using that time of prayer to brag to God. He never asked for forgiveness. Rather, he thanked God for having no sin as he looked down on this publican next to him. Now, notice Jesus said that he prayed with himself rather than to God. This was a self-centered, narcissistic prayer meant to deny sin. Meanwhile, the publican, he was mortified by his sin. He wouldn't even lift up so much as his eyes into heaven. He was ashamed as he stood before God. And I believe that that shame afflicts Christians across the spectrum. I believe the more spiritual that I become, the older that I get, the more that I learn of God, the more unworthy I realize that I am as I stand before Him. And yes, there is shame at my actions that is there. That may describe you, and it may describe why you sometimes do not pray. But notice that the publican still prayed. He humbled himself before God. Yes, he was embarrassed before God. Yes, he felt dirty before God. But he prayed about it anyway. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, it isn't presumptuous to pray and keep on praying, even with sin in your life. You will always have sin in your life. But Jesus says we need to simply acknowledge it before God, Persist in prayer anyway. Remember, God is not looking through the skeletons in your closet at this point. 
He's looking through the blood of Jesus Christ. And through the filter of that blood, He sees you, His favored child, and He wants to hear you pray. Now as I say this, I know there's at least one person within reach of my ears who is saying, yes, but you don't know what I've done. My sin is so great that I cannot come back from it. I cannot pray because I just went too far. This promise isn't strong enough to cover me. It isn't meant for someone like me. Precious friend, this promise was made for people like you. You say your sin is especially bad. Well, perhaps it is. Perhaps mine is. But remember this, our Savior prayed and He was destined to become the sin of the whole world rolled up into one person. He became that extra awful sin of yours and mine and every other sin across all time and existence for mankind. And do you know what the worst part of Jesus' crucifixion was? I'm about to tell you. But I want you to think about what I just said. Whatever sin you carry, it pales in comparison to what Jesus had to become for you and I. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Do you know what this verse means? It means that Jesus actually took on all the sin that ever was and ever will be in the whole world. That includes your sin, my sin, good, big sin, small sin. He became that extra bad sin. And that leads me to the worst part of Jesus' crucifixion. But because He did that for you and I, turn with me to Matthew 27, verse 46. It says, And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the worst point of Jesus' crucifixion. You know how I know that? It wasn't the nails. It wasn't the shame that elicited a response from Jesus. He didn't cry out at those things. He didn't ask for something to numb that pain. He rejected it, as a matter of fact. What got a response out of Jesus was the moment when He who had dwelt with God the Father since time without beginning understood that the Father had turned His back on Him for the first time ever. Because God the Father cannot look on sin and Jesus had become all of our sin. Now I say this out of the spirit of love. But if you are one who says that you cannot pray because your sin is too great, if you don't pray and you say the reason is you don't know what I've done, my sin is too great for forgiveness, if that's you, then in the spirit of love I need to say something to you and you need to hear it. Shame on you. Shame on you for making the sacrifice of our Lord of none effect in your life. Because that is what you do when you refuse to pray to God due to sin in your life. This is serious business. You remember when we read in Isaiah 59 verse 2 and it said that our sin made a barrier between us and God so that He would not hear us? Well, Jesus took care of that. Jesus paid that price. He became 
your sin. And now, not only can you pray, but you must pray. Don't forget that. Jesus paid a terrible price so that we can approach Him in prayer. If you willfully sin and reject Jesus, then God is not hearing you. But when we seek God through Jesus, praise God, He made a way. We can be heard over the cacophony that is the sin in our life. Never try to take that away from Him in your life by refusing to pray. God loves you. He wants to hear from you. He wants to be reconciled with you. He made this miraculous provision, this ultimate sacrifice, just for you. So humble yourself and pray. Every single day about everything you can, because anything else, that's not just a travesty, that is a perversion of God's awesome plan for your life. And there's one last reason that I want to look at for why Christians don't pray. And that's because they're discouraged by unanswered prayer. <clears throat> I hear this a lot. Sometimes it's from people who are old and bitter. Sometimes it's from people who are young and inexperienced. But it affects most people at some point. Sometimes our prayers aren't answered immediately or at all, as far as we can tell. And as a result, some Christians do grow and then they just stop praying altogether. Sometimes out of disgust, sometimes out of discouragement. But I debated as to whether or not I even wanted to include this topic in this sermon because really it needs a lot of time. It's a lesson by itself. I can't devote a lot of time to it this morning, but I decided to go ahead and put it in here because I think it's important. There are many reasons why God may not answer a prayer. Sometimes He may be answering your prayer, just not in the way that you hoped He would. Other times, he might simply say no. Regardless of why, we have to remember a couple of things about God. He is just, he cannot lie, and he is sovereign. Therefore, you can count on the goodness of God regardless of the answer that he gives. So in keeping with the theme of this study, I want to point out what Scripture says about why our prayers are sometimes not answered. Psalms 37 verse 4. This is really the key to the whole thing. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. The question to ask is, when we pray, what is our focus on? Is it on the glory of God, or is it on our desires? If we seek the will and glory of God, it will affect our desires, and thereby it is the will of God to grant our petitions and requests. If Jesus, His peace, His will, His wisdom is at the root of every request that we make because our desire for those things is rooted in the deepest part of our hearts, our desire for Him, then our prayers will reflect that and we will no longer be able to say our prayers aren't going, or that our prayers are going unanswered. That's the promise the Bible makes. If Jesus is the true desire of your heart, your prayers will change. The focus will come off of you. It will be on Christ. And there is a fulfillment, a peace, and a joy that He will give you in response to your prayers. With or without what you specifically asked for, 
that will always meet your deepest needs. Now turn with me to James 4, verses 2 through 3. It says, Ye lust and have not, ye kill, and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. And ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. It can be difficult to subordinate our will, our passion, our desires to those of the Lord's when His will and viewpoint may be different than our own. I can almost hear somebody saying that will hear this message, well, what about that time when I prayed that a loved one wouldn't die? And then they died anyway. Or what about when I prayed for health and I didn't receive it and I got a cancer diagnosis? What about when I asked God to intervene against evil forces and situations and people and yet they carry on unopposed? You know, people might look at our country right now and ask those kind of questions. What in the world? Why are you not answering my prayer, God? Rather than just try to answer those questions for myself, what I want to do is just quote God's response to Job who was questioning God's actions in this situation just like that. You all know this verse. Job 38, verses 2 through 3. This is God speaking to Job. Who is this? Darkening my plans with his ignorant words. Stand up like a man, embrace yourself. I will ask questions and you give the answers. I don't think I'd want God to take that tone with me. But just understand that this is how God sometimes feels when we're sitting here saying, God, it's not fair, it's not right, you took my child, you gave me cancer. I mean, for goodness sakes, I've been eating rabbit food my whole life as a vegan and I got cancer. What's going on, God? God says, well, if you know so much about the situation, then here's a whole list of questions that you can answer if you can. Of course, Job couldn't. And that's the point. We are not God. We don't always understand because God's ways are above our own. This is a simple fact and we have no right to challenge God. We can ask questions of Him. We can even express our emotions of disappointment. We can tell God we're frustrated with Him. There are examples in the Bible of that very thing. God, I'm frustrated with what's happened. I don't understand what you're doing. Please explain. As long as we are reverent about it, the Bible is full of examples of God being willing to allow us to express our emotion to Him. We're not robots, but we cannot challenge Him. Now, how might you challenge God? Well, God, you took my child from me. You tell me you've got your reasons and that your ways are above my own, but I cannot accept that. I'm done talking to you. That's challenging and rebelling against God. There was nothing wrong with what you said, how you felt up until the point where you said, I refuse to submit to your will. We cannot be discouraged to the point that we rebel against God by no longer praying when our prayers go unanswered according to how we wish they would be. Don't allow yourself to fall into rebellion against God. If you've been refusing to pray, fall on your knees and repent. 
Ask God to soften your heart. Ask Him to have a conversation with you. Because I can assure you, there will be a wave of such peace. You will feel, if you've ever been under such immense stress for a while, and you just feel like there's tension in you, and if something happens that relieves you of all that, maybe it's you've been waiting for a job and you finally get it. Maybe it's you've been receiving treatment for an illness and you, find, or you had cancer and you, you find out it's gone. It's in remission. could be any number of things. Maybe you were worried about a loved one. You didn't know they were out in a storm and you don't know if they're safe, if they're alive. And then you, they call you on the phone and you just feel that tension bleed off and then you're exhausted. <laughs> Basically, fall to the floor. You want to sleep, but you're filled with peace and joy. That is how you will feel if you will return to praying to God, especially if that return comes after a rebellious refusal to pray with Him because you didn't like an answer that He gave. But peace can be yours. Now, I don't want to leave this on a harsh note talking about you know, how Job approached, or God approached Job and, and his irritation with him. Because the reality is that our hearts don't need to be hurt or hardened by unanswered prayer. It doesn't have to be a negative experience. I hate quoting secular people, but you know, Garth Brooks, he's got that song, Thank God for Unanswered Prayer. I don't know if you've heard that. He says sometimes one of God's greatest gifts is unanswered prayer. He probably got that from somebody else somewhere along the way. But there's great truth in that. God always has our best interest in mind. There may Come a day when you desperately pray for an outcome, some protection, some divine intervention. You may very well be praying for something that isn't answered, but remember God is in control in those times, and His control, His being in control is a good thing. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, For I know the plans and thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for peace and well-being and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. If I were to come across anybody struggling with God's will and purpose in their life, if anybody said to me, I'm struggling with prayer because of unanswered prayer, I'm bitter, I'm hurt, whatever, this is the one verse that I would turn to above all others. But I cannot tell you how many times I have heard Satan speaking through the mouths of men about this verse. And let me tell you why. When you study theology... One of the things that you've spent a lot of time focusing on is historical context. And the context of this verse, it was written to the Israelites during their period of exile. And God was basically saying, you're going to be killed, uh, destroyed, exiled, enslaved, whatnot, but have hope because I know my plans for you in the long run are to give you an expected end, is how the King James Version says it. In other words, an expected end meaning that you can see what's coming. It's something that you would expect a loving father would do for his children. That was his promise to them. But people will say, well, <clears throat> that was a historical promise God gave in that situation only to those people. There is also a context that applies to us. This demonstrates the very character of God that he has toward all of his children. We are God's children too. Paul says that the people that accept Christ, they are the true Jews. 
They are His true people. You and I, we are adopted into that family. So this promise, this wasn't God saying, don't worry, in this specific exile, I remember my plans for you. If that were true, then why did the Holocaust happen? And why didn't God come by and say something to them at that point as well? Logically, if you think about this long enough, you cannot say that this verse has no meaning for us today. It has all the meaning in the world. So remember, in those difficult times where God's will and your own don't match up, keep on praying because God has wonderful plans for you. Nothing but good. Yes, that good may come at the end of a period of adversity, but that adversity was only there to the extent that you needed it to be to turn to God and allow Him to act in your life. Unanswered prayer does not have to be a bad thing. It's certainly not a reason to stop praying. In conclusion, one day it's all going to make sense. <clears throat> we will be able to sit at the feet of Jesus and ask Him all kinds of questions, I believe. But for now, we speak to Him in prayer. And there are many reasons people cite for not praying. Sometimes those reasons are known. Sometimes they're on a subconscious level. But it is my hope that each of us will examine our prayer lives. If we find them lacking or struggling or stagnant, let's dig in and be honest with ourselves about why that may be. I certainly didn't cover every possible reason that people don't have uh, an active prayer life. So you might find another reason in your own life. And I'm going to leave you with the shortest verse in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. God hears His children's prayers. If you're not yet a child of God, but you want to be, there is no better time to repent of your sins, confess Christ, and be baptized than today. And if you're already a child of God, but your prayer life is anemic or even dead, let us, as this church body, intercede on your behalf. We'd love to pray with you this morning. If there be one of either case, we ask you to come forward. Have a seat on this front bench where someone will come and listen to your needs and provide help as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71, Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-647. 2658. May God bless you.